the next few weeks, as we finish out chapter 5 and move into chapter 6, Paul's going to be discussing relationships. So he begins today with the relationship between husbands and wives. Next week, parents and children. Then the final week after Easter, when we come back, it'll be slaves and masters. Now, when you think of husband and wife relationships, what comes to mind? I always go back to television. That's what I think of. So let's do a history through the American television relationships here. First and foremost, some of you in this room perhaps think of June and Ward Cleaver from Leave It to Beaver as the ideal husband and wife couple. Some of you might think of Archie and Edith Bunker. I don't think any of you would consider them, or at least I hope you wouldn't consider them, the ideal married couple. But nevertheless, that might come to mind for some of you. I often think of Jack and Norma Arnold from the original Wonder Years that came out when I was like a little kid. Some of you might think of Philip and Vivian Banks from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Now I'm really dating myself, and I don't even know what shows come on nowadays. So I'm just using shows that I grew up knowing about. But all of those couples that we have on television, while they might have pros and cons to them, none of them fit the biblical understanding of what it means to be a husband and a wife. In addition, all of us in this room grew up, either by parents or grandparents, that modeled for us what husbands and wives look like. Some of them might have been good models. Some of them might have been bad models. But if you were married in here, you brought certain assumptions into your marriage that you maybe thought this is what marriage is supposed to be. If you grew up in a family where the dad worked all day and he came home and he sat in his recliner until it was time to go to bed, you might have had that type of expectation of you as a husband when you walked into that marriage relationship. Maybe you grew up in a home where the father, the husband did all of the cooking instead of the wife. And so when you entered into your marriage relationship, that's what you had in mind. So everyone in this room, if you're married or one day will get married, you're all bringing, all of us are bringing expectations and assumptions of what we think constitutes a healthy marriage. But the expectations and the assumptions that we bring might not necessarily reflect what God teaches in his word. So we go to Ephesians 5, where Paul lays out biblically the roles of husbands and wives in the marriage relationship. But the biblical understanding of marriage is not the world's understanding of marriage. When I meet with couples for premarital counseling, and I wish this phrase was original to me, I'm not sure where I learned it or who taught it to me, but one of the first pieces of advice that I give couples that are about to get married is this. Love does not sustain your marriage. The covenant that you are making, that is what sustains your marriage. So, why is this important? Because the world's understanding of marriage is more contractual rather than covenantal. In other words, I approach my spouse, I have these expectations that I expect her to perform. If she is not up to those expectations, I will make the contract null and void by getting out of the marriage. 
That is the world's understanding, for the most part, especially in the Western world. That is the Western world's understanding of marriage. That it is a contract. If my spouse doesn't fulfill me sexually, emotionally, intellectually, psychologically, then I can just get out of the marriage. But when you're married by a pastor and you are using the biblical understanding of marriage as covenant, then love is not what sustains your marriage. The covenant is what sustains your marriage. And it's always hard to get premarital couples to understand that the way you feel about your spouse today will not last forever. It might last a couple of years, three to five years, but you're not just marrying the person for who they are on the day of your marriage, you're also marrying the person for who they are 30 years from now, 50 years from now. And we can't predict the future, right? So this is why this idea of covenant is so important. The covenant is what sustains a marriage. So as we approach this very challenging passage, I'm bringing personally, and our church is bringing, these assumptions into the text. Number one, Marriage is a covenant, not a contract, and is permanent, except for cases laid out in the New Testament that provide biblical grounds for divorce. Number two, marriage is between one man and one woman, as clearly laid out in Genesis 2, 18 through 25, which was read earlier in the service, and is reinforced in the New Testament by both Jesus and Paul. And then number three, God created us, male and female, in his image, and we are equal before him in value and dignity, but the husband and the wife bring complementary roles into the marriage relationship. Now, these three statements, just so you're aware, has been the historic confession of the Christian church for 2,022 years now. The three statements that I just shared with you are not new. Now, we might have had pushback on this within the last say 100 years, 50 to 100 years in our history. But biblically speaking, those three truths, that marriage is a covenant, that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that God created us in his image, male and female, each with complementary roles in the marriage, is the biblical, orthodox understanding of marriage since the church was formed in the book of Acts. So this morning, as we approach this passage, keep those thoughts in your mind as we work our way through this study today. And it's three points directly from the text. Number one, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Number two, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then number three, couples reflect the mystery of Christ and his church. Wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. And couples Reflect the mystery of Christ and his church. Let's begin in verse 21. You see right there that there's in your Bibles something going on. Sometimes your, your little subtitle begins in verse 22. Sometimes it begins in verse 21. Depending on what translation you have, there's a debate whether or not verse 21 goes with the section today or concludes the section that we looked at last week. Now, in the context, I actually believe that verse 21 fits better with this part of the passage, which is why we began there with verse 21. 
But before Paul even gets into the specifics of what the wife and the husband should do in the marriage relationship, he provides this overarching statement for both husband and wife. And that is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's implied, by the way, in verse 21, that the roles that Paul lays out for both the husbands and wives in this passage only apply to husbands and wives. In addition, Paul's writing to Christian married couples. So we cannot hold the world to this understanding of husband and wife if they're not in Christ, if they don't have the Spirit of God residing in them, they are not going to automatically believe or understand this type of marriage. Wives, Paul says, are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And it's important that you point out here, or that I point out, to your own husband, and then verse 25, your wives. Paul is not making a blanket statement here about male and female. He is making a statement about husbands and wives. Therefore, women, if you're not married, you are not required biblically to submit to men. Men, if you're not married, you are not required to love all women as Christ loved the church. Now, this is not an excuse to like treat the opposite sex like garbage. If we have brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to treat them with respect and dignity. But this particular passage is addressing the marriage relationship, how husbands should treat their wives and how wives should treat their husbands. It says, wives, you are to submit to your husbands. The key phrase here being as to the Lord. Thielman, who's a commentator, he points this out. He says, Christ is the submissive party's authority. And when wives and children and slaves, in the context of Ephesians 5, render obedience, they do so out of obedience to Christ, not because of any innate authority in the male head of the household. In other words, ultimately, Wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord because they desire to please Jesus, who is their king. Wives, you aren't forced to submit to your husband. You have free will. You can do what you want to do. But you should desire to submit to your husband because it is pleasing to Jesus, who is your Lord and Savior. And Paul argues this in verse 23, when he says that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Do you see the comparison there? Jesus is the head of the church. The church submits to Jesus. The husband is the head of the wife, and the wife should submit to her husband. This phrase in verse 24, here's the phrase that causes concern for everybody, and it comes in verse 24. In everything. That little prepositional phrase is what oftentimes causes many people to scratch their heads, view it controversially. This does not mean that a wife should submit to her husband if her husband is leading her to do something that would contradict the teachings of Scripture. It is not just a blind allegiance to whatever your husband wants to do. 
But submission is also not conditional upon the husband keeping up his end of the bargain as the head. This is really important. Paul discusses this in some of his other letters. What happens in a marriage relationship when the wife is faithfully submitting to the husband as to the Lord, but the husband is not leading out as the head, and he's not loving his wife as Christ loved the church? What is the wife supposed to do in that scenario, which, by the way, is incredibly common? Here's what the wife is to do. If you are a wife whose husband is not being the spiritual leader of the home and he is not loving you as Christ loved the church, then you continue to obey the teachings of Scripture and you pray that the Holy Spirit will change the heart of your husband so that he will step up and become the leader that he is supposed to be. And we're not saying that you should submit to an abusive relationship or anything of that nature. But if you are submitting as to the Lord, to your husband, but your husband is not stepping up and being the head as he should be, then you pray faithfully for your husband that he would step up and become the leader that God has called him to be. What about in relationships where the spouse is saved and the husband is not? Paul addresses this explicitly. He says... You submit to your husband, and by the conduct of your life, you pray that the Spirit will transform the heart of your husband, and that the way you lived your life causes him to desire to also repent of his sin and believe in the gospel. So wives, you submit to your husband because it is a picture of the church submitting to Christ, who is the head but we don't just stop there, do we? Now the husbands have to perk up for a minute. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Do you realize, husbands in the room, future husbands, do you realize what Paul is saying here? Love your wives the way that Christ loved the church. We're aware what Christ did for his church, right? He laid down his life for his church. This type of sacrifice was not only radical in the first century world, it is radical in 2022. One commentator points out, the far more typical approach to marriage in Paul's day was that the wife should manage the household well in order to free the husband from domestic concerns and enhance his social prestige. So when Paul is saying, men, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, Paul is essentially saying, you are no longer primarily concerned with your social prestige, with your reputation in the community. Your number one concern is now that you love and cherish your wife. The number one concern of a husband outside of his relationship to Christ himself is his wife. Not career, not children, not golf, not the bank account, but the spouse, the wife. That is the number one priority that husbands have. And Paul goes on to elaborate what the purpose behind Christ giving himself up for the church was. Number one, to sanctify her. Number two, to cleanse her by the washing of water 
And then number three, with the word. There is no sanctification apart from the death of Christ on the cross. None. So if we're to properly understand that, we have to understand that we have to keep the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at the forefront of our marriage. Because that's how we're sanctified. And so if we're sanctified, Paul is saying you should sanctify her in the same way that Christ sanctified his church. Ultimately by doing what? By laying down his life for his bride. Now more than likely we will not have to physically lay down our lives in the way that Christ did. But we are called, husbands, to daily sacrifice for our wives. And the washing of water is how people in both Paul's day and in today in the rite of baptism symbolize the purification, the washing away of dirt and filth. And then with the word describes the gospel being preached. So bring it all together. Christ gave himself up for the church for the purpose of sanctification, cleansing, and for the proclamation of the gospel. So husbands should love their wives in the same way. They should lead out in sanctifying not only themselves, but their spouse. They should keep the picture of the gospel at the forefront of their marriage. And then Paul says, husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. Let's just admit it, men. We think highly of ourselves. So this verse strikes a chord with all of us. How many of you love your bodies in here, men? You don't have to raise your hand. I know you do. This is what Paul is saying here. He's saying love your wife as much as you spend on your own body. Drinking protein shakes, working out, running, shaving, whatever it is you do with your body. Love your wife the way that you love your own body. God has given both husbands and wives bodies that we are to steward well for the glory of God. And as we nourish and cherish those bodies, Paul says, men, husbands, that's how we should treat our wives. We should cherish them. We should nourish them. Can I confess something to you? That's hard. I don't always cherish and nourish Ashley the way that Paul is laying out here. Husbands, I would say we probably all fall short of what Paul is teaching us to do in this passage. We're fallen creatures, full of sin, I often take Ashley for granted. I don't live up to the standard that Paul writes here for me to live up to. And she's not in here today because she's in worship care, not because she doesn't support the sermon, by the way. (laughs) So let's think for a minute about how Jesus nourished and cherished his church for the comparison. And we can use nothing but the book of Ephesians to grapple with this idea. He redeemed it. Ephesians chapter 1, 7 through 12. He sealed it, Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. He empowered it, 
Ephesians chapter 1, 19 to 23. He unified it into one body, chapter 2, verse 16. He filled it with God's fullness, chapter 3, verse 19. He gave it gifts, chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. And he loved and he sanctified it in chapter 5, verses 25 to 26. He does this for his church because we are members of his body, verse 30 tells us. And this is the picture that Paul gives husbands about how they should nourish and cherish their wives. Do you see, husbands, future husbands in the room, how you are supposed to be taking care of your wife? This standard that Paul lays out here is a monumental task that God has given us. And it's also a task, by the way, that cannot be done without the Spirit of Christ residing in your heart. Because if you're trying to live out these biblical roles of what it means to be a husband and a wife apart from the Spirit, you will never be able to even come close to living up to it. Because we are far too selfish in the flesh to live up to the standard that Paul sets out for us here. The Spirit has to be residing in our hearts to even come close to living up to the biblical standard that Paul lays out here for both wives and husbands. And then number three, couples, that is husband and wife, reflect the mystery of Christ and his church. In verse 31, Paul is quoting Genesis 2.24, which is a verse that you know well if you've ever been to a wedding. It's always read. A man leaves the family, he grows up, and he holds fast to his wife. Now the verb for hold there is the idea of being joined to or cleaving to one's wife. And it also carries with it the idea of, of sexual intercourse. In fact, one commentator said that that word for hold is the exact same verse that Paul uses elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, where he says that a person who has intercourse with a prostitute is one body with her. Why does that matter? The order in which sex happens biblically matters a lot. Biblically, when couples engage in sex, they are becoming one flesh. And that flesh should remain together permanently. Now, Ashley and I, she made me watch it. I ended up loving it. We ended up watching Downton Abbey together. Anybody seen Downton Abbey? Okay. PBS show, Victorian era. And I noticed in that show that nobody really, you don't date in the Victorian age, right? You have families that pick out a spouse and they meet and they just get married. And there are times in that show that some of the relationships don't work out for whatever reason. And it came across to me that when these relationships ended, the two parties, they might have been a little disappointed, but they weren't distraught. They weren't overwhelmed with emotion. And then something came to mind. You know why they were able to handle it with a little bit more maturity and a little bit more level-headedness? Because they had never become one flesh. When you mess up the order, when you mess up the design by which sex is to be engaged in, it leads to all sorts of disastrous ramifications. 
God's design is that sex consummate the marriage relationship. So to engage in sex prior to marriage messes up the order that God has clearly laid out in his word. Now, I'm not naive. I've met with enough couples to know that even couples that grow up under biblical teaching abandon this principle. And it is by no way the norm, even within the Christian context. And by all means, Assuming that these brothers and sisters in Christ have repented of that sin and asked for forgiveness, the Bible clearly teaches that he is a forgiving and gracious God. But let me talk to all of you in the room yet who are either not married or, you know, where you're not married and maybe you're divorced but you're not remarried or something like that. Let me talk to all of those who are not married in the room for a moment. When you give of yourself sexually to another person, outside of marriage, and that relationship comes to a conclusion other than marriage, it is far more disastrous than if you had withheld and followed the Bible's guideline for when sex should be engaged in. And now, because the order has been messed up, sin has entered into the relationship. And sin brings consequences. And sexual sin brings consequences. It brings jealousy. It brings shame. It brings guilt. It brings lust. And I know what the Western world teaches us about sex. It is to teach us that sex is casual and that it's to be used strictly for enjoyment and that it's possible to have sex and not get attached. But I promise you, all of those teachings are lies. They are not the truth of Scripture. You will get attached to the person that you engage in sexual intercourse with outside of marriage. You know why that is? Because the whole point of sexual intercourse is for you to be attached to that person. It is for you to become one flesh with them. So it's not surprising at all to me when couples that break up and they are on the verge of breakdowns And oftentimes it happens because they have engaged in a relationship that was supposed to be saved for the marriage relationship. Just so you know, when you watch movies and TV and commercials like we all do, and they come across as making it seem so casual and so carefree and just enjoy yourself and everything's going to be fine, those that can engage in sexual relationships and detach themselves emotionally from it, the only reason they're able to do that is because sin deceives, distorts, and sears the conscience. Sin distorts our thinking, and it leads us to think that we're okay to do this. And when they don't feel guilty, that's because sin sears our conscience. And the more we engage in it over time, the more desensitized we come to it. And then it distorts our thinking. It leads us to believe, because everyone else is engaging in this behavior or that behavior, that somehow I'm missing out on what it means to be a human being unless I engage in that behavior. And I don't want that for anyone in this room. So teenagers, young adults, older adults that are not married yet, I'm not telling you 
to wait so that your life can be miserable, which is not true either, by the way. I'm telling you to wait because there is joy in holiness. There is joy in pursuing Jesus with all that you are. Your identity, brothers and sisters in Christ, is not a sexual being. Your identity is who you are in Christ. Regardless of how you might be fulfilled one day sexually or not fulfilled. The pinnacle of life on this earth is not engaging in sexual intercourse. The pinnacle of life on this earth is desiring to please Jesus with all that you are. That is the goal of our lives as Christians. But I don't want to either lead you astray into thinking that it's okay to do everything but sex until marriage either. Don't don't leave here with that distortion either. Pursue sexual holiness completely for the glory of God in a world that tells you it doesn't matter. It does matter because God's word says it matters. So husbands, to tie a bow on this, when we love our wives as Christ loves the church and wives, when you submit to your husbands as to the Lord, you are reflecting Christ and his church. And you are reflecting to a lost world, not only a picture of marriage, but a picture of the gospel. When husbands are fulfilling their role as head and loving their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives are submitting to their husbands as to the Lord, you are providing a picture of the gospel to a lost world. Here's how this works. If the husband is leading as the head and loving his wife as Christ loved the church, and he's pursuing that with all that he is, did you know more times than not, the wife will gladly submit to the leadership of her husband because he is fulfilling his biblical role. And at the same time, wives, when you submit to your husbands as to the Lord, the husband will be glad to step up and be the head and love you as Christ loved the church. It's not a perfect one-for-one formula, but to the extent that both spouses are leading out and being obedient to what Scripture teaches about what husbands and wives to do, it almost creates the circle where they are mutually submitting to one another. How do I know this? Tim Keller's wife, Kathy, actually has written a lot about marriage. And she gives this great example about the two pictures of submission that we have in the New Testament. One is this passage in Ephesians 5. That is the idea that the church ultimately submits to the headship of Christ. So in this role, Jesus is the head, but don't forget all of the things that he did for his bride. He submitted to his bride through all of the ways that we outlined, ultimately by giving his life for his bride. So that's one component of submission that Jesus demonstrates. But there's also another component in Philippians chapter 2. Let me read it for you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. And I didn't bookmark it, so it's going to take me a second. Here's what Paul writes. 
This is also a hymn, most likely, that the early church sang, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Husbands and wives, you are actually both getting to fulfill the Jesus role in your marriage. By mutually submitting to one another, you are showing both how the church submits to Christ as the head, but also ultimately how Jesus submitted to his father and did exactly what God desired for his son to do, which was to come and live the perfect life and give up the comforts of heaven seated at the right hand of the father to come and live among people like you and me. Jesus was the head and Jesus submitted. Husbands, you are the head. Wives, you are to submit. But in the process of doing that, you both mutually submit ultimately to Jesus Christ as king. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for this passage. Challenging as it is, a passage that has been torn down by so many today, dismissed as out of date, irrelevant, archaic, and we confess today that this truth is still real and it matters for us. So as we enter into this time of the Lord's Supper, we've already confessed our sins and we come before you now to partake of this family meal together where we can remember what it is that Christ has done for us through his death on the cross. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.